Amen, amen. Well, if you turn to page eight on your notes, and we've just finished looking at the statue of, that Daniel saw and interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar. And I just say in the middle of the page, one disturbing thing about studying these forms of government, which are described in Daniel's stature and all rejected by God, is that at this present time you can see men trying to make them work, not only in the world, but also in the church. That's what's so disturbing. Amen? Now, as you move on, um, the next title is Deploying the King's Air Force. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I feel we've got to comprehend this. Uh, and I, if you come down to ground forces are not enough, just let's just pause there for a moment. To try and advance the kingdom by praying and warring only at the earthly level is like trying to win a war using only infantry or ground troops without using air power as well. In the natural, this would be extremely foolish. If an army was to advance up a valley and fail to use its air force to target and remove the enemy gun positions in the hills on either side, it would be a crazy military strategy. Would you agree? If the army tried to advance with only ground troops, those enemy positions in the hills would rain down artillery shells on these troops and cause heavy casualties. And this, unfortunately, is what the church has been doing for a long time. She's so earthbound and has not seen her potential and power in the heavens and has never used her heavenly air force strategically. And I feel that's a tremendously important thing that we've got to learn. If that's the one thing we get out of this, it'll be worthwhile. If you want to turn with me just for a moment now to John chapter 12, I want to pick up some things here. Just John chapter 12. It's not in your notes, I'm just adding some stuff here. And Jesus says in verse 23, particularly as the Gentile world is beginning to want to see Jesus, if you like, the unchurched community, the people that don't know anything about church, um, they're wanting to see Jesus. Although they may not realize that's what they're wanting, that's what they're wanting. We've got to get rid of Christianese and start learning to talk in language that they can understand. And there's a multitude out there that are just longing for what Jesus can give them, but they don't know. And when they began to ask and say, we want to see Jesus, then first of all, in verse 21, um, Philip, but verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, because the trouble is, you see, so much of our training and so much of our uh, behavior in churches that we only know how to handle church people. And if they don't come and fit into a church system, then we don't know what to do with them. We, we don't know how to handle them. In fact, I know one guy, a pastor in this city was fired from the church because he was bringing unchurched people into the church and spoiling the church atmosphere. <laughs> and that's going on all over the place. But even if they don't actually do it that brutally, at least there, there is no, there's no rapport. And Andrew, Philip didn't know what to do, so he told Andrew, and Andrew very wisely went to ask Jesus. And Jesus gives the answer. This is the answer. So listen, this is the answer for reaching the world for getting beyond the walls of a nice 
Christian club to being the kind of community that can impact our society? This is the answer. And this is what he says. First of all, verse, he says in verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he's talking about the cross. This is going to be the moment of his glory. Jesus never saw the cross as a disaster. He never saw it as something to be weeping and groaning over. Everything he says about the cross is he can't wait to get to the cross. And pass through the pain of the cross, yes, but the pain of the cross was probably, say, 24 hours of humiliation, ending in three hours of extreme pain and suffering and affliction. Then it, then it was all over, it was finished. And then he dismissed his spirit and went to be with the Father. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom and sin did not continue to be paid for for the three days in the tomb. It was all finished at the cross. I hope you understand that. And what was happening in the, in the tomb was something totally different, which we'll get onto later. But as far as Jesus was concerned, he said, I can't wait to get to the cross. That's what he said again and again. He told his disciples 17 times. He said, look, they're, they're going to take me. They're going to crucify me. They're going to wrongly accuse me. They're going to put me to death. They're going to crucify me. But he said, don't worry. The third day, I'm going to rise again. <laughs> and I think all this false misery on Good Friday drives me nuts. In any case, it wasn't on Friday. It was on Wednesday. But I won't get into that right now. The, the joy of the cross was in him even through the pain because of he saw that that three hours of in, in, in unbelievable suffering and we do need to ponder what it cost him that's a perfectly right thing to do but it was three hours of suffering leading to an eternity of total absolute ruin we've got to understand and I'm, i know i'm telling you some of the things some of you know but i just got to repeat it to get the whole picture and some of you may not understand this clearly but Jesus, for the first, for the, while he lived on earth, before he was crucified, he lived in the same humanity exactly that Adam had before he, before he sinned. He had the, the same innocent humanity to live in that Adam lived in before he made the decision to step into independence. But it was weak humanity, it was capable of sinning, which we're told he was tempted at every point like we are, but he made a decision, and the decision was that every minute of his human life, he was going to do one thing, which was to love the Father and to prove his love by obeying him. He was motivated by love, although there was a reverent fear, the driving force was love, not fear. Hello, can you hear me say that? And, and because he loved his Father, he would not dream of doing anything other than perfectly obey him. And as a result, he let, remained in perfect fellowship with the Father, and because of that relationship with the Father, he lived inside the kingdom, because the kingdom is a place where God's will is done as it's done in heaven. And, and the humanity of Jesus became the kingdom of God because of the obedience to God's will. So he became a one-man manifestation of the kingdom. The kingdom returned to earth in the person of Jesus and began to manifest itself through his humanity, and he came to earth, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, as the last Adam. So he came, if you like, to recover all that Adam had lost by living a different kind of life. 
The life that Adam lived was a life of independence, which led to him becoming a sinner and bringing the devil, allowing to then to come and set up his kingdom upon earth. And through the disobedience of that one man, sin passed upon all men and all of creation became foul and filthy with the devil's contaminating hands. And he, he got control of all of creation because God had given Adam the authority to rule over all creation. So by getting Adam, he got all of creation. Now God could have just come and gone, wiped the devil off the face of the earth, but because God is perfectly righteous, he couldn't judge Adam. I'm sorry, he could not judge Satan for what he did without judging Adam also as an accessory to the fact he was, he was a co-criminal with Satan. And God could not selectively punish Satan and let Adam get off scot-free. So he withheld judgment in order to keep the door of salvation open to, to man, to give man the opportunity to reverse the decision of Adam and step out of independence and step back into total obedience to God, which is really stepping into the kingdom. Jesus came to first of all model that, and secondly, when he came to the cross, he was going to legally deal with the debt that Adam still owed the God because of his disobedience. So he became the representative man of Adam's race that, that came to earth, but he only lived in the parameters of what Adam had lost. Adam never had authority in the heavenlies. Adam never was exalted to sit on a throne far above every principality and power because he failed the obedience test. And so Adam's authority was limited to earth, and even that authority was lost once he stepped into disobedience. So stage one of the recovery of the kingdom was for Jesus to recover what Adam had lost, which was to have authority on earth returned to him. The only problem was that now there was a rival kingdom to fight with. In the days of Adam, there wasn't a rival kingdom. He had perfect authority and rule over everything that God had created, and everything ran in perfect order because while he was under God's authority, the eternal life of God could flow into Adam without restriction. And by the power of that eternal life, Adam could rule over himself and he could rule over all God's creation. The ability to be God's ruler was entirely the empowering of God's eternal life. You understand that, I trust. So once the eternal life was cut off, Adam not only lost the authority to rule, he lost the ability to rule. He couldn't even govern himself. He couldn't even keep himself free from sin. He became the prisoner of Satan, and all of creation fell into the hands of Satan. So now Jesus, in stage one, comes back to earth, and the first responsibility he had was to recover what Adam had lost, and he came on the earth, but his authority was limited to what Adam had lost, which was authority on the earth. He had no power yet as a man to speak to principalities and powers to deal with those heavenly realms of demonic activity which were the power which brought and maintained the darkness upon the earth. The devil had learned long ago that the way to rule over the earth was to occupy the heavenly realm immediately over the earth. And that's where his kingdom and his reign and his throne was. But from those heavenly vantage points, he exercised rule and authority over everything which was upon the earth. <clears throat> so Jesus came... And anything that came upon earth, he had authority over. If a demon came and invaded a human person, he could cast the demon out. Anything that the devil did on earth, he had authority over it. But he did not yet have authority to deal with anything in the, in the heavenly realm, because that had not yet been given to him. 
So he, he established the kingdom and advanced the kingdom under the difficulty of a heaven occupied by demons and by Satan and an earth which he was cleansing from that kingdom of darkness. And as a result, it was an ebb and flow. He had victories, he had failures, he had successes, and it was a, a battle to and fro all the time. Now, the devil continued to rule from that heavenly vantage point, for example, even in the city of Jerusalem. Only Jesus did the most amazing miracles, lived the most amazing life. He manifested the fullness of God's eternal life. He taught the most incredible teaching which had never come from the lips of a man before with such amazing authority. But the practical result was that the city of Jerusalem got worse. It didn't get better during his earthly life. It became more corrupt religiously and it became more corrupt politically. And only a tiny minority of people actually made an open and unconditional commitment to the Lordship of Christ. It was just 120 people. The rest of Jerusalem benefited from his healing ministry and received certain gifts, but never came into his kingdom and never came under his authority. And the devil still reigned supreme. It was still, it was still the devil's city. It wasn't Jesus' city. He never became Lord of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem never accepted him as their king. In fact, that was the issue over which he was finally crucified. Caesar said, behold your king. What did Jerusalem say? We have no king but Caesar. What shall we do with this man, your king? They said, crucify him. Now it was the demonic powers ruling over the city which made those people behave that way and speak that way because they still had control. Now that was all part of the process which was going to bring the liberty of the city. But understand, that's why he couldn't do more on earth and that's why he was so totally frustrated with the manifestation of the kingdom which was shown during his earthly life. He couldn't wait for the cross to come and then because of the cross he couldn't wait with the power of the cross to deal with all the power of Satan and he couldn't wait for the power of the resurrection which would allow him at last to become the ruler even in these heavenly places. So for him it was all his earthly life particularly the three and a half years when he wonderfully manifested the kingdom and we saw him do such fantastic things he said I'm totally frustrated I, I've got he said I can't wait for this baptism of suffering because only then will I have the power and the ability to set the earth on fire. Now he could temporarily delegate his authority just as we saw very briefly that Joshua could impose if you like his passion upon a community of people and they lived under the power of that passion it wasn't really theirs and the moment Joshua disappeared so did the passion hello in the same way Jesus could temporarily impose upon the 12 and impose upon the 70 the, the faith that he had the prayer life that he had, the anointing that he had, the passion that he had, he could temporarily put it upon them and they would move in the power of that delegated authority but it wasn't really theirs. But the moment he was to leave and go to heaven, if that was all he accomplished, then the kingdom would cease because these guys didn't have the kingdom in them, they just had it imposed upon them by the Lord Jesus. Do you understand that? And that's why he was crying all the time, oh, you've got to get faith. And you've got to get the anointing and you've got to get the prayer life. In other words, you've got to literally become like me and, and the kingdom's got to come into you the way it's coming to me. Otherwise, there will be no continuation of the kingdom after I go to be with the Father. Now come to John 12. Verse 24. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now here's the principle which God sets in nature to teach us a principle. If you take a grain of wheat, put it into the ground, then it dies in order to multiply itself. That's the principle of, of, of sowing any seed. The seed dies, and in the seed are just the few days of initial life, but then it learns to draw life from the soil and can now grow by the power of the nutrients in the soil. But the, 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 then it will come to harvest, and at harvest time, grain on the at harvest will be identical to the seed and have exactly the same DNA. It's not just wheat, it's, it's got the same DNA as the seed that was sown. This is what Jesus is teaching us. He says, now, you see, I've got to do something. I've got to multiply my life. Now, I got a measure of success by imposing myself externally upon my disciples, but they weren't really changed in their heart and in their spirit. And the moment I cease to be a man and cease to have the power to influence them, then that will not continue within them because it's not really them. It's actually, if you like, a very beautiful form of hypocrisy. Hello? In the true meaning of, of being a hypocrite, they were hypocrites of Jesus while they went out and healed in his name because they were still full of unbelief. It's amazing, isn't it? They weren't transformed to be like Jesus. They were just, they were just forced by the power of Jesus' anointing and personality to behave like him temporarily. So in that good sense of the word, they were actually acting like hypocrites. But it wasn't really them. And it had got to become really them. So the only way for it to become really them was for him to die. And by dying, he could make available a multitudinous increase of the seed. The Greek word that's used is the word sperm. So if you could bear the analogy, what Jesus did was by his death, and by dying, he made available in the heavenly realm an unlimited sperm bank, and every one of those sperm had the full DNA of the glorious, full-grown Lord Jesus Christ. And all you needed then was to take that sperm of his son, which is exactly the words that Peter uses. We've been born of the sperm of his son. This is, this is Greek biblical language. He takes, so what God does is, in what's called the new birth, he takes the sperm of his son and plants him in the womb of our spirit. And, and there, there's a conception takes place of a total new man that has the, the DNA of Jesus. And because it's got the DNA of Jesus, it will relentlessly grow up to become a replica of who he is. Although it will carry our personality, it'll be his, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be his nature and his spirit that will be reproduced in us and there'll be actually a, a multiplication of the Jesuses that are on the face of the earth. Now that's what he could see. But for that to happen, we have to, if you like, we have to, and in the spirit, both men and women, we have a womb. We can give birth to things. We can travel and give birth to things. And that's something we have to learn. We have to learn that in spirit, we're neither male or female, we're both. And sometimes we move in a sort of, we have the, the qualities that women particularly exhibit. Sometimes we have the qualities that men particularly exhibit. That's why women can be mighty warriors and men can be wonderful mothers in the spirit. They can give birth to things in the spirit. You got the picture? And so he says, right, now I'm going to die to make the sperm available, but you've got to die to make the womb available. If you're living your life in your personality, there's no room for me. We cannot have two people occupying the same body. 
It's either you or it's me. And if I'm going to fill your life with, with my risen person, then you've got to die to make room for me. And that's why he says in the next verse here, he says, he who loves his life will lose it. That's the soul life. There's three words in Greek for life. I'm sure you know this. There's a spirit life, there's a soul life, and there's a physical life. And he says, he who loves his soul life will lose it. But he who hates his soul life, this is a literal translation, he who hates his soul life in this world will exchange it for the very eternal life of God. Now that's, not a, that's a paraphrase, but it's actually conveying the truth of what's being said here. So by dying to your self-life, you can then give your humanity in total availability to, to the risen Christ and his sperm will be planted in the womb of your spirit and he will grow up inside you to be a full-grown man with all the abilities and all the attributes of the risen Christ and he can use your humanity just as well as he could use his own. Except his filling of your life is the risen life, not simply the earthly life. So the Jesus in you is a million more times powerful than the Jesus that walked the earth, if you can believe it. Now this is so crucial to believe this because this is what makes all the difference between being earthly Christians and being heavenly Christians. Come down to one more verse in John 12. He says, for this hour I came into the world, verse 27. Father, glorify your name. Father speaks back and says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. And he said, this voice came not for me, but because of you. Verse 29. Verse 30. Now, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up, will draw all men, all peoples to myself. So the next thing that we learn about the cross is that that was when and where Satan was judged. That was when and where he ceased to be the prince of this world. You still hear people talking about the devil as if he was, he's not the prince of this world. He's lost that power at the cross. It was taken from him. He's dispossessed, dethroned, and now he's just masquerading as something he once was but no longer is. It's just a lie and we can call his bluff anytime we choose and we can prove who has the authority around here. That's why Jesus said in, in further on in Luke chapter uh, 17 and um, let's go back there. Luke chapter 10, I meant to say verse 17. Luke 10, verse 17. Verse 19, actually. When they come back from their successful kingdom trip. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm completely off the wall here. Luke chapter, um, I, I was right, Luke chapter 10, verse 19. This is what he says, Behold, I give you, and the word is exousia, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the dunamis, the power of the devil. He does not say the authority of the devil. And you'll find that since that time, the devil is never accredited with authority on earth. He's just accredited with a certain amount of power. 
You've got to make this distinction in Scripture. Unfortunately, our English translation do not always make the proper distinction. Sometimes they translate the word exousia, which is the word for authority, by the word power. That's not a good translation. You've got to make the distinction. Because the devil still has some power, but he no longer has authority. Let me try and illustrate this if I can. Imagine that there's a particularly tough area of, of a city, like say a city like New York. There's a well-known drug dealer that's been finally caught up and a policeman goes to arrest him. But this guy's say seven feet tall, he's 160 pounds of muscle, and this cop is five feet tall, but he's got a badge that says, I'm no, New York City Police, he's got the badge of authority. So he comes up and says, I've come to arrest you. And the guy goes, ha, 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 boom. And he knocks him flying. <laughs> because he's much physically stronger. He has more power, but he doesn't have any authority. Now imagine that cop gets up, runs away, cries, says, that big bully hit me. I'll never go there again. I'm not going to try and take arrest him again anymore because he hurt me. And he lets him continue illegally to, have, to rule that particular part of the city because he's been, if you like, damaged by the power that came against him. Hello? Or he could say, he, he hit me and I'm a New York City cop with all power. Let me get on the phone. Hey, I just want, I want some reinforcements here. Another 10 policemen arrive, this time armed with guns. Now they've got the authority, but they've also got the power. And then they can easily overwhelm him, arrest him, and throw him into jail, which he deserves. Now, sometimes Christians go against the devil, and he outpowers them temporarily, and they get hurt in the conflict, and they run away and say, we're never ever going to do that again. It, 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 we don't, it's not right for us to go against these demonic powers because they're too strong for us. But if you will come back with the right power as well as the right authority, you can overcome them every time. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we've got to learn in this whole matter of spiritual warfare to make the distinction between authority and power. You've got to be quite sure the devil has no power, has no authority, but he may have some power. But when we rightly combine our authority, which is undisputed, with our power, which is unlimited, providing we access it properly, every time we can beat the devil every time. But if you go against the devil, even legally in your rights, without the power to back up your authority, you may come off the wounded one, even though you've got authority and the power, if only you used it right, to destroy him. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's something we have to learn. Okay, let's move on. When Jesus was risen from the dead, he did, first thing he says, well, let me go back a moment to, to his pre resurrection life. While he was in his pre-resurrection life, he did not have yet have authority over the demonic powers that ruled over the city of Jerusalem. He couldn't remove them, he couldn't dislodge them, because he had not yet been given the, the power that he was going to get in his resurrection. So they stayed there undisturbed while he continued his earthly ministry. If they came and attacked him on earth, he had power to deal with them. But he had not yet been given the authority or power to go into the heavens and deal with those demonic powers in the heavens because his power, his time had not yet come. So he didn't try and dislodge those demons during his earthly ministry. He had to put up with them and it made his ministry seem less effective because of that because he never really dislodged the demonic powers of the city. 
But once he'd been crucified, and once he'd dealt legally with all the devil's right to rule, which we read about in John 12, now the devil has got no authority. He's come to an end. He's got no power. But on the other hand, Jesus in his resurrection has now earned the right by his obedience to be the first man that God ever had to whom God vested power and authority, not only to rule on earth, but also to rule in the heavens. So the human risen Jesus Christ was a man with all power and all authority on earth, in heaven, and concerning things under the earth. The first time a man had ever, ever had that position. Adam never got that position because he never won, if you like, the right to rule by his years of perfect obedience. Does this make sense to you? So when we're talking about the risen Christ, we're dealing with a totally different person. The first thing he said when he appeared to his disciples, he said, all power and all authority has been given to me. Exousia and dunamis, the two come together in that verse. All power and all authority has been given to me on earth, in heaven, and concerning things under the earth. I've got complete authority in every realm of existence. I rule the heavens, I rule the earth, and I rule that region under the earth, which I'm still a bit mysterious what that region is, but it's described in scripture. So wherever the devil comes, in any of those three realms, he's got authority over him. He's got power to cast him down. And so now, he says, you can go, but you've got to wait until you understand who you are. You've got to learn, and this is a separate tape. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you must get this tape. It's a one, one uh, CD which talks about the word kathizo, what it is to sit down on a throne and rule in the heavens with all power and all authority. Jesus said, don't you go and try and do anything until that's become a reality in your life. Get clothed upon with power. And when you are thus empowered, then you will be the same as me in terms of your heavenly rule and authority. And then anywhere you can deep meet, deep meet the devil at any level of existence, of any level of, I don't know what word to use, in every realm of, of all that God has created, every realm of it, all that which is in any way part of God's speaking into being, whether it's spirit, whether it's physical, whether it's heaven, whether it's earth, whether it's under the earth, all of that now comes under the rule of this risen man. He has all power and all authority in every realm of this. And all other powers are now totally under his authority. Now, he says, we can start to deal with the heavenly principalities. One of the things he did in the upper room was to teach the disciples how to take authority over the demons that ruled over the city of Jerusalem. When they came out of the upper room, they came into a city where those demonic powers were cast down. And as a result, when Peter gets up to preach once, 3,000 people turned to the Lord and were added to the church. In a few months later, a lame man is raised and runs around leaping and praising God. 5,000 people turned to the Lord. And this is the same city which Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And all they did when Lazarus was raised from the dead was to plot how they might kill him. There was no response of joy. There was only a response of animosity because the, spirit, because the city was still controlled by the demonic spirits that ruled over the city. And these were religious spirits with great power over the city of Jerusalem. And they controlled the religious life. They controlled the political life. And, and Jesus, because of his limited authority at that time, did not yet have the authority or power to break through. 
But once he was risen, everything was changed. Now, some teachers today are still teaching what, what I would call the power that Jesus had when he was on earth. So we have no authority in heaven. That was true up to the resurrection, but it's not true now. And, it's, and the only way we're going to see cities taken is to engage those demonic powers that rule over cities. And we now have authority in the name of Jesus to cast them down. In fact, if you read Ephesians chapter 1, particularly the last part, perhaps we'll just turn to that for a few moments. Am I going too fast for you? Can you hear what I'm saying? It's so important to get this. Come to Ephesians chapter 1. The first 15 verses of Ephesians 1 tell us of our amazing inheritance in him. And we could spend a week looking at that glorious inheritance which he's given us. You come to verse 17, Paul says, I want your eyes to be opened. I want you to see something more. I want you to get and begin to comprehend the power of his resurrection. I want you, I want you to understand that not only did the power raise Jesus Christ from the dead, but that same power of the resurrection has now come into you. And as a result, it's, you can now move in that power. This power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has raised him and seated him at God's right hand, verse 20, in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion. Every name that's named, he gives five superlatives, one after the other, of, of absolute power. He says, he's far above all of them. Not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he's now got everything under his feet. He says, now that's what he's done. And he's done this in his body, the church, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, come down into chapter 2. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with Christ, verse 5. And he has raised you up together and made you sit together with him, or more literally, in him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in other words, where he is, you are. What he has become, you have become. What he can do, you can do, providing you do it in him and providing he does it in you. In other words, if you're in him, then all that is him is now you as well. Amen? Does that make sense? And when you really see that, you realize that although you're nothing, you're just a piece of humanity. But if you've been indwelt and taken over and, and filled with the risen Christ in all his authority, with the Father and with the Spirit, the triune Godhead has come and taken over your humanity. And his risen Christ seats in your humanity to exercise his rule. There's not a power in hell that can stand against him. It's not because of you, well, because of who you are, but because of who lives in you. And I remember years ago in this, well, I'll come on to that tomorrow. I'll talk about that tomorrow. But I've seen it work through me. I've been amazed when some major demonic principality comes against me and something inside me roars. It's not me, it's the lion of Judah. And he roars and he goes to war with this thing and he's just using my humanity. And I'm a spectator to something amazing happening through my humanity and this demon runs in terror from this. It must be very infuriating with this pes pesky demon. I'm thinking of the spirit of Kali, one of the great spirits of Hinduism. This spirit can't stand the Jesus in me. It must be very, this petty little bit of humanity. I've ruled this whole region of northern India and, and, and many other places as well for thousands of years. And this little pesky little bit of humanity comes against me and I can't do a thing except run because the risen Christ dwells in him. Hallelujah. 
Now, when you see that, then you start to then get a heavenly perspective as well as an earthly perspective. So much of the church only sees things from their, at their best, and that's not where most of them are. They're trying to be like Jesus on earth, and they're not even accomplishing that. And that doesn't deal with the demonic powers in the spirit realm. And so they can still harass you, counterattack, undo what you do. You get one person healed one, one week, and then three months later, it's back upon them again. So all the, time, the battle's ebbing and flowing all the time because we're not dealing with those demonic powers at their root. But when those demons were cast down over the city of Jerusalem, within two years, this is an historic fact, within two years, a third of the city was converted. The church went from 120 to 20,000. With little nobodies like Peter primarily doing the preaching. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't because Peter was a better preacher than Jesus. Obviously, it was because the demonic powers had been removed. Now, if that spirit had not called up an even greater spirit, which I won't go into today, but I will go into tomorrow, because the first battle was to cast down the spirit over the city of Jerusalem, which they succeeded in the upper room, and they went out in the power of that in the upper room to begin to shake that city. But then the next phase was for a greater spirit in the greater realm of that demonic hierarchy to come into the battle and launch another attack which needed a different kind of strategy and it took the church 30 years to learn that strategy. I'm going to deal with that tomorrow. That's why the church didn't succeed in doing to Jerusalem what the preaching of Jonah had succeeded to do to the city of Nineveh. A third of the city was converted. That's a pretty amazing thing. And for 20 years, the church in, the church in Jerusalem con continued to multiply and increase. It dealt with strong demonic powers that came at it through the crazy demonized Pharisee called Saul. But eventually, a much higher power spirit came against them. And that high power spirit brought the whole of the power of Rome, the whole political machinery of Rome against them. And they had not yet learned how to deal with that level of spirit. So in AD 70, the city was destroyed and the church went into hiding and went through a period of great difficulty for almost 30 years until it learned how to come to another level of warfare and then once again it was to break out in the victory and triumph over the spirit that ruled in the city of Ephesus. I'll talk more about that tomorrow. But I want you to see the principles here. And somewhere along this line, we've got to get to where they got. And these things are written in history for us so we can learn the lessons and begin to apply them. And we're, as we learn to apply them, and France, I know, could get up and give some tremendous testimonies of what's been happening in, in, in Europe and, and in warfare with the Dalai Lama. I tell you, these things are not theory. They're working. This is why suddenly in Bombay we saw this incredible breakthrough in 1972. We, we, we saw a great demonic power over a sector of the city. It wasn't ruling over the nation, but it was ruling over that city. It was a Roman Catholic power that controlled over a million people, the power that was broken. And the people came flooding into the kingdom of God. And in a matter of short time, just four years, we saw 100,000 people saved. And, had, and, and, and this happened because we were learning to do what Jesus did. But we had no books or tapes to help us in those days. We were just exploring new territory. But now we have much more understanding. We've got much more wisdom. And it doesn't need to take you that long. And what's more, you can see it to absolute completion. Amen? So then we learn to deploy 
what I'm going to call the Heavenly Air Force. I've lost my notes, but they're here somewhere. Okay. I've said a little bit about Satan's hierarchy. I'm not going to say any more. You come down to the bottom of page um, nine in your notes. And we talk about winning the legal battle. I'm just going to open up this and then we will close for today. I've got a little, about half an hour to go, I think. Turn to Luke chapter 18. This was the concern of Jesus. Once he went to be with the Father, the one thing he had to find, which we read about in verse 8, is will he find faith on the earth? And just preceding that are one of these two parables on prayer. Starting at verse 1, he spoke a parable to them, and the purpose was that that men, and that should read men and women, by the way, ought always to pray and not to lose heart. And he, he illustrates this by picking on perhaps the most vulnerable and weakest member of society, which would be a little widow woman. And he uses this as, look, if, if you will fulfill the conditions, it doesn't matter how small you are, how uninfluential you are, how weak you are, if you will fulfill certain conditions, you're going to see an answer. And this is, this is what, what he's teaching us here. There was a certain man, a certain city, a judge who did not fear God, nor had regard for man. Now there was a widow in that city, and, she, and now we're talking about praying for a city. Can you see this? And she came to him saying, give me justice, it says in the New King James. I think the, the, the better word, because the word it comes four times here, is ek dikeo, which is, I want to obtain my legal rights. In other words, what I want is, is legally my right, and I want it. Get justice for me. Give me my legal rights over my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, though I don't fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will give her her legal rights, lest she continually comes to weary me. Then the Lord said this, hear what the unjust judge said. Now, if that's what an unjust judge would do, shall not God, verse 7, legally avenge or legally give rights to his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? And the word bear with them, it's a, it's a word, the work is, the Greek word is makrothumadon is the word, and it means to have long-term persistent passion about it. Now that's God's attitude. He can't immediately act because he's got to fulfill certain mysterious rules of God's perfect righteousness. He's not lacking the desire, he's not lacking the passion, he just doesn't have the legal right to move yet. And he's bearing, it says, with, you know, he's bearing with them. He, he's, but he's, he's bearing, he's not passivity, it's, it's long-term, persistent, passionate patience. I love that, don't you? Say, say well, keep going, keep going, keep going, because I can't wait. The moment you finish the legal part of this, and I can legally let those angels go, I tell you, I'm going to lose legions of angels in that situation, and boy, they're going to do, do that, rip that thing apart. Keep going, don't stop. Now, from the human point of view, it seems like you're praying to a God who doesn't care. 
or else he's not able to help you. But he said, that's not true at all. I love that when I just researched, I love that when I got hold of that, I thought, wow. Although he, he waits with long-term, persistent, passionate patience. We've got to complete the legal process before I can legally release legions of angels to go and fight with you and deal with that demonic power, which I hate just as much as you do. And I'm longing to cast down just as much as you do. In fact, much more. I can't wait to get my hands on him, and, but I've got to wait until it's legal. So please don't give up the case, because if you give up the case, my power to do it is taken away from me, because I have to work through the prayers of a man. Now, we mustn't forget that. In all this spiritual warfare, we've got to understand that Almighty God is Almighty God. He's all-powerful, but God has to work through the agency of man for it to be righteous. He's got to find a human being. Even if it's a little weak widow woman, just one little, tiny little frail woman with, with no money, no influence, no power, but she just knows how to keep asking. She knows how to pray. Because she's human, she's enough. And he's waiting. Keep going, keep at it. You know, I've got to give the devil every right to defend himself. I've got to give the devil every right to prove his, he's got some case against you. But I know he won't, but we've got to go through the process. But when the case is heard and I can legally bring a judgment, I tell you with great fiery, passionate purpose, I'm going to say, you're out of court, devil, and now I can release a, a legion of angels to come and destroy what you were illegally trying to pretend was yours. I tell you, verse 8, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Amen? Now let's go back to Luke chapter 11. And I've done these round the wrong way deliberately. Because I want, you, I want you to see what the purpose of this is. The purpose is to get that kind of faith, to pray those kind of prayers, to get those kind of demonic powers totally, totally cast down by God legally and righteously being able to release legions of angels to do it. But there's a process that has to be gone through. So when you come back to Luke chapter 11, which is a, 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 a chapter largely dealing with prayer, it starts with teaching us how to have an effective personal prayer life. And then in verse 5, Jesus asks a question. Which of you will have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Don't trouble me. The door is shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and answer you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because of his, he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For anyone, or if you like, everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. He guarantees 100% success. It's what I call the sixfold promise of God. Anyone. Now, what he's saying is this. He's saying this whole purpose of this kind of, of prayer is to teach you to stop now praying beyond yourself. It's good, of course, to have an effective personal prayer life which meets your needs, but that's where many Christians stop. 
But he says, now I want to take you further, where you now stop praying just for yourself, and you start to say, well, Lord, I want to start using my prayer power now to get things for my friends, my friends in need. And, it's, and you're going to your friend, and your friend, you say, friend, I want three loaves, which of course is a picture of the triune God and the bread that came down from heaven. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit between them have everything that any human being could possibly need. Would you agree with that? Some people need the Spirit, some people need the Father, some people need the Saviour. We all need all of all of them, but the order in which we receive may vary according to the, the intensity of their need. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to you? So all the fullness of the triune God is that bread which came down from heaven, which Jesus talks about so powerfully in John chapter 6, which I've not time to go to, but I'd like to. And we have the power to call down that bread, not just to satisfy ourselves, but to give it away to our friends in need, which is, which is what he wants us to learn to do. So I will pray down the fullness of the Godhead into my being, that then that fullness of Godhead in my being might now be a means of meeting the needs of anybody and everybody around me. If they need a saviour, then I'll talk to them about Jesus. If they need the love of a father, I'll talk to them about the father. If they need the power of the spirit to break some demonic curse off their lives, I'll now, it'll be the spirit. All three persons together work to meet every need that every person has. But notice that he's got to be your friend. Amen? And secondly, notice that you have a friend in need. And one of the things we're going to have to learn is we're going to have to learn to stop living in an isolated bubble where we have no friends in the world. Anybody that I sit next to on a plane is immediately my friend. If I meet them in a hotel, I'll, I'll, anywhere, I'll talk to them. If I'm just buying, you know, just checking into a little motel somewhere with Indian people running it. I'll, I'll be after them immediately. I'll say, well, I, I'll talk to them in Hindi, which shakes them, and then I'll talk to them about my Jesus. I, I, I've, I've got a friend, I've got a friend, and he's got all the ability to meet your need. And I could tell you story after story after story in planes where I've talked to the guy or the lady next to me, and I've been able to say, well, the God that I know is the answer to your need. I've got a, I've got a friend. And, and he's got anything and everything my friend could possibly need. But I have to confess that my friend in need has a need and I have nothing to set before him. I'm useless. I'm hopeless. I have no human answer to their problem. I've got no resources naturally to meet your need, but I've got an almighty God who's got everything that you need. I could tell you lots of stories, but I'm being very restrained. I'm talking out of my own experience. This really, really works. We learned years and years ago in Bombay when we were planting the churches there and God was moving in the 70s. At that time, we had 40% unemployment in the city of Bombay. If you wanted to get married, because there was already a million people already living on the streets, it was impossible for, to get a room. People were without jobs, they were without food. And so we learned to be able to go to our friend and get our friend to meet every need we had. While we had 40% unemployment in the city of Bombay, we had 100% employment in the kingdom. We, we created businesses, and we got jobs, and once they were employable, sometimes they were such a mess, we had to get them unemployable, if you understand what I mean. But once we got them to, to, to be transformed into a, a, a replica of Jesus with a good work ethic, then we could always get them a job. 
and we learned to get things for our friends by asking our friend. And, and, and that, that became a tremendous practical source, if you like, of proving the power and the reality of God's compassionate concern. But then, as you start to minister to people's needs, you will find more and more of them that their needs are spiritual. They're not, they're not, there are some are material, and they're the easy things to fix. But sometimes they're spiritual needs. They're messed up with demons. They've got deep emotional hurts from the way they've you know, been abused by a father and, or they've been thrown out by their family. I mean, there's all kinds of incredibly wounded, broken people littered all around us and they have needs which we've got to learn how to meet them. I can't meet them, but God can. Amen? And I learn to be the channel to meet that need. But as you start to deal with people in need, you'll find that so many of them, their source of their problem is really spiritual. And so you've got to learn to deal with that spiritual thing, which means you've got to learn how to cast out devils. And, and I, I mean, I could tell you story after story after story after story. After story. I mean, the, my first battles with demons, I mean, the first demon I ever tried to deal with was a smoking demon. It was a girl that, that had been on drugs and uh, she was a heroin addict when she was picked up on the street and taken into this rehabilitation center that I was working in. She'd been a prostitute and all that. She'd got gloriously saved, but she couldn't stop smoking. She smoked all her life, and whenever she came into a meeting, the moment she started to get into a meeting, this demon inside her began to jump around. I didn't know it was a demon, because I didn't know there was such a thing. But she couldn't, she'd go at me, she said, I can't stay in the meeting, I've got to have a cigarette. So one meeting I went out and said to her, her name was Frankie, I said, Frankie, come on. I said, she said, I can't, Alan, I can't stay in the meeting. This moment I get into that meeting, there's this craving for a cigarette, and I know you won't let me smoke in there. So I said, I said to her, look, Frankie, look, let's just confess together that Jesus Christ is Lord over smoking. Now, I wasn't talking about a demon. I was talking about confessing the victory of the cross. I said, come on, let's agree together. Come on, you say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord over smoking. And when I said that to her, a totally strange voice came out and said, how did you know I was in here? And I said, I didn't. I said, I said but, but, but I do now. And this demon said to me, I've been in her since she was four years of age. She can't live without me. You'll never cast me out. Anyway, you're just a greenhorn. You don't think about casting out demons. This is what the demon said to me. So you better go and call for so-and-so. He knows all about this sort of thing. And he was the local deliverance expert, you know, totally overworked. Because most people thought they couldn't do it. So I was on my way to the phone. I thought, now, wait a minute. I said, I, said, I may be a greenhorn. <laughs> I said, but my Bible says I've got authority to cast out demons. The demon just laughed at me. I said, you're coming out if it takes all night. <laughs> and there began a battle which took two and a half hours. Finally, this pesky demon came out of this girl and she was gloriously delivered. But it was a tremendous battle because it just knew I'd never done this before and I hadn't got the authority or the experience. But I tell you, now I could do the same thing in 10 seconds because I know my authority and the demons know that I know my authority and they can't argue with me. Amen? But you all have to start somewhere. It's better to cast a demon out in two and a half hours than not to cast, than not to cast it out at all, isn't it? Amen? And you will learn that when you start ministering to people's needs again and again and again, you're dealing with a demon. You're dealing with a demonic power that's causing the need in their life and you've got to learn to cast it out. Amen. And that's the primary reason, according to Luke 11, why the Holy Spirit is given to us. And, 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 and the moment the Spirit of God comes upon us, he has the power 
in and through our humanity to cast out demons. And you better believe it. So I learned to move in that ministry. And the demons start to know who you are and you get a reputation. You know, I said, the demons said to uh, the sons of Sceva, and they see, they, they try to copy Paul's methodology. We command you to come out in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. You can't learn this from a book. You can't just use a methodology. It's got to be by the authority of the spirit of faith within your own heart. If you say, C -c -c come out, they won't come out. <laughs> if you say, come out, and they know that you know, then they will, they will know they've got to come out. And you will soon have a reputation. They will know you. They said, Paul I know, and of course Jesus I know, but, but who are you? Well, I'm glad to say that I'm on the list now. I'm known. Many demons know me, and I'm talking about not just rank-and-file demons, but more authoritative ones, which we'll deal with a little bit tomorrow. And it's good to get that reputation. Amen? Amen. Now, what Jesus does is he trains you in the relatively friendly atmosphere of getting things for your friends. And then you progress then to start to dealing with the demonic as you get, start to get deliver them. And before long, you're dealing with the principality. If you go on through Luke 11, there's a progression right through the chapter. And then you've got to learn how now, not just to deal with the, the small boys, but the big boys. And that's a different ball game altogether, but it's still within our sphere of authority to deal with every demonic power, whatever level they are in the hierarchy of the devil's kingdom. We have power over them all. Amen? But we've got to learn the authority, if you like, and we've got to have the faith to be able to deal with them. So having learned in the relative friendly atmosphere of getting things for your friends, starting with jobs and, you know, uh, 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 meeting material needs, money, gifts, you know, all the kinds of stuff that we do to bless people with God's generosity. And I'm just the channel for God's generosity. Then I move on to the demonic. I start with pesky demons doing pesky things in people, too, I start to begin to confront the principalities, the strong man, but I still proceed because the kingdom in me has more power and more authority than the power that any of these demons have. Now I can start to deal with demonic powers that are ruling over regions or are ruling over cities. That's why this whole scene is set with a widow woman crying out in her city to be avenged of her adversary, and we've all got the right to do that. And if we learn how to persevere, we will come to the place where God can give a righteous judgment and say, well, you've stuck in there, you've proved your case, you are flawless in the case you presented, the devil is unable any longer to resist you, I've given him the chance to defend himself, he's not able to say a word against you, so now I'm going to send a legion of angels to enforce the judgment written, and now you go to war with angels, it's a different ball game altogether, which we will come on to tomorrow. Amen? So let's close for tonight. And let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I want to be, if you're not already, I pray you'll become this kind of person. I pray every stage and phase of Luke chapter 11 will be fulfilled in my life. I pray, Lord, that like the widow woman, I've learned how to persevere until you can righteously give judgment against the demonic power that's resisting your authority in my city. Lord, I want my legal rights, I want vengeance. And I, I thank you, Lord, that you, you are patiently and passionately persistent with me in seeking a 
just answer to my prayer. Lord, give me the faith, and I will exercise the faith persistently over whatever period of time it takes to see that demon cast down and to see your glorious victory come to that city and as a result, bring about transformation. Now, Lord, I want you to train me. I want to become effective. And Lord, if I already know these things, I pray you'll teach me how to train many others to become at least as effective as I am so they can become mighty warriors until we can multiply the army of warriors who are able to do these things, to glorify the name of Jesus and forcefully extend his kingdom in his mighty name. Amen. God bless you. I just want to say one or two things quickly for this evening. Uh, you can leave your stuff where it is if you want to. And we're going to come back.